Welcome to another episode of the Mind's Eye podcast. I am Dr. Annika Vanderwelt and we are recording today from the NOSA conference in Melbourne in 2018. I have with me Dr. Neil Shuey, who is a neuro-ophthalmologist at the Royal Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital, and the two of us are very excited to welcome Professor Prem Subramanian, who is a guest speaker at our 2018 conference. Now, as an introduction, uh, Professor P- Professor Subramanian is the Professor of Ophthalmology and Neurology and Neurosurgery um, at the University College Health, Sue Anchets Rogers Eye Centre, and the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Colorado. Before that, he was on the faculty of the Wilmer Eye Institute at the John Hopkins Hopkins University. He is very well known for his interest in medical treatments for patients at risk of progressive thyroid-related um, eye disease, um, and he is always looking for better treatments for patients with this condition. I just want to point out that we are recording um, in the um, at a busy conference, and you may hear some background noise um, here and there, but we have tried to keep the quality um, as good as possible um, for you. Um, friend, without further ado, we really enjoyed your talk. Um, and I was wondering, um, just as an introduction to the topic, whether you could perhaps just briefly define thyroid-related orthopathy um, and your diagnostic approach to the problem. Sure. Thank you very much for asking me to join you today. Thyroid-related orbitopathy is characteristically associated with Graves hypothyroidism, although it can occur in isolation as a euthyroid Graves orbitopathy. It also occurs less commonly in individuals who have Hashimoto thyroiditis. And diagnostically, uh, first of all, about a half of individuals who have systemic Graves disease will have some manifestation of thyroid eye disease. The majority of them, it's quite mild. It may be just some eye injection. It may be eye irritation, uh, mild proptosis. The more moderate manifestations like diplopia, eyelid retraction, and then severe changes like compressive optic neuropathy occur in a minority of patients, maybe 10 to 15 percent. So fortunately, the majority of our patients from a diagnostic standpoint, we recognize them by the characteristic symptoms of eye irritation, periocular swelling, particularly first thing in the morning, um, eye pain, and then the signs that I mentioned as well, the eye injection. From a laboratory workup standpoint, it can be useful to obtain titers of TSI, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin, as well as TRAB, which is a thyrotropin receptor antibody, both of which have a positive correlation with Graves' orbitopathy and may have some predictive value in terms of the severity of the disease, as well as being markers that can be followed as a response to therapy if one ends up giving a systemic therapy of some kind. I don't tend to get baseline CT scans in individuals just to have them, but I will get them if a patient has diplopia and evidence for restrictive strabismus as the major presenting sign and symptom of suspected thyroid eye disease, so that will help me to confirm the diagnosis. CT scanning of the orbit can be helpful in those instances. Thank you. 
And in terms of that medical management of the inflammatory uh, phase, you were talking about the, um, the importance of IV steroids and the protocols that you use for that. I wonder if you could just uh, briefly outline that and also um, whether you could touch on any other um, aspects of the medical management when you're from top people to control the thyroid disease, smoking and selenium. Is there a role for this? Um, issues like that, please. Absolutely. I'll address your the second part of your question first. There was a study that came out of Eastern Europe that suggested that selenium supplementation in patients was effective for preventing worsening of their thyroid eye disease when they had mild disease. While a formal study hasn't been repeated in North America, for example, anecdotally we were seeing no real benefit to giving our patients selenium. And in speaking to our endocrinologists, it does appear that the region from which the study was initially published has borderline selenium deficiency. And selenium comes from the soils uh, in which our food is grown. And North American soils are very selenium rich. I don't know about Australian soils, but uh, in North America, we don't use it primarily because we don't think it's going to have any benefit for our patients. Thyroid disease control, systemic control, is absolutely important for the management of thyroid eye disease. Hypothyroidism in particular, under replacement of the hormone after the patient has undergone either a surgical thyroidectomy or a radioiodine ablation can lead to a worsening of their eye disease by upregulating the immunological process. <clears throat> So I work very closely with our endocrinologists to try to ensure that patients have good systemic control. I don't want them to be hyper or hypothyroid uh, before I proceed with any treatment of their eye disease. With respect to the IV steroid protocol, I do reserve it for patients who have active disease, as I defined, because the best evidence is that the patients who have less active disease, they're more likely to have spontaneous remission, and the likelihood of benefit from a steroid or other treatment is going to be less than someone who has a higher activity score. So the IV steroid protocol that I mentioned in my talk really derives from studies that have been done by the European Thyroid Eye Disease Research Group, UGOGO, and um, nice randomized prospective studies have shown that what was defined as a low, moderate, or high dose of weekly intravenous corticosteroid, and primarily the medium and high dose, and by that I mean a starting dose of either 500 or 750 milligrams of intravenous methylprednisolone given once weekly for six weeks, and then a half of that dose, so either 250 milligrams or 375 milligrams respectively, given weekly for the subsequent six weeks. The evidence is that the moderate dose, the lower of those two doses, is probably as effective as the highest dose, except in the patients who have the most severe disease. And so I, I and others tend to favor that lower dose. The toxicity or potential toxicity of methylprednisolone starts to become more of an issue around a cumulative dose of 8 grams. And at that high dose regimen, you're giving 7.5 grams, which is quite close to that threshold. Things that would make me think twice about giving a patient corticosteroids would be if they have poorly controlled diabetes, labile hypertension, pre-existing hepatic disease, or other medical comorbidities that increase their risk from taking corticosteroids. 
Thank you for outlining some of the contraindications to corticosteroids. I was wondering, however, how you would approach this group of patients where medical treatments are still needed, even though corticosteroids are not a good idea. Um, secondly, I was also wondering if you could perhaps expand on new treatments in development for this condition um, and drugs going through the approval process. Um, Patients who can't take steroids have some other options. Most so-called steroid sparing agents haven't demonstrated much efficacy in thyroid eye disease. So I tend to stay away from things like methotrexate, azathioprine, uh, mycophenolate mofetol. But there are some data, somewhat controversial, that rituximab may be of benefit in patients who either don't respond to corticosteroid or are unable to take them. And rituximab has potential serious side effects, so you have to have a discussion with the patient as to whether the risk-benefit ratio is one they're willing to accept. But I have also used rituximab in such a patient cohort, uh, in a small number of patients, to treat their disease that was refractory to other management methods and have seen some positive results from that. But I think it remains something to be used on a case-by-case -case basis because of some conflicting prospective data in which one study showed benefit and another did not. Regarding other evolving therapies, a targeted therapy, teplotumumab, targeted against the IGF-1 receptor, uh, was studied and a prospective trial published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. And this study demonstrated uh, quite an impressive, in my opinion, effect on both the activity of thyroid eye disease and the physical manifestations, in particular the proptosis that results from the eye disease. And to my mind, it's the first drug that really shows some promise in reducing that aspect of the disease. No other medication, even corticosteroids, can really demonstrate a value in that respect. And so this is a drug that's making its way through the approval process right now. I'm hopeful that it will become available in the future, uh, but it's not yet. Um, what is the role, if any, for orbital radiotherapy? I, like many other people who treat these patients, still hold it in reserve for those individuals who cannot tolerate medical therapy. So when you ask me about medical alternatives to corticosteroids, uh, orbital radiotherapy is one possibility in those patients. Most of the studies, and that's the confounding factor, have been published with the use of steroid as well as radiotherapy, and there are only a few that have studied radiotherapy alone. And the results have been somewhat mixed in those instances as well. Some studies had some flaws, such as enrolling patients who had long-standing disease that was perhaps not active, and therefore they did not get a benefit from radiotherapy, but one might not have expected them to have had an effect. So... In most patients, I think the dose that we use, the 20 gray, is quite safe. The incidence of adverse effects from this dose of radiation is very, very low with it being properly targeted, and that's the key. I, I think the risk is minimal. Patients, though, who have diabetes may be at slightly increased risk, just like diabetic patients are for any radiotherapy. And so I do hold it as a second or third line treatment, particularly in patients who have compressive optic neuropathy and are very poor surgical candidates who simply can't tolerate anesthesia to be taken to the operating room for a decompression. 
Thank you. And that leads me to my next question about the management of the compressive optic neuropathy. Um, in the first instance, you know, what is the role for monitoring these patients? Should we be doing OCT, visual fields, vision, these kinds of assessments? Um, and uh, and also, um, you know, what is the role for stepping into surgery? When the patient presents with a active disease and a slowly progressive optic neuropathy characterized by exactly what you were talking about, perhaps a decrease in visual acuity and or color vision, a visual field deficit, a relative afferent pupillary defect unless it's bilateral. And then on fundus exam, a relative preservation of the optic nerve color and then OCT suggesting that there has not been permanent damage. I'm comfortable with starting with medical therapy in those individuals. But if I see that they are having a progressive change, a worsening, a worsening of their field over a short period of time, if they're starting to get pallor, if the OCT is showing some loss of the um, macular or ganglion cell complex or the retinal nerve fiber layer or both, um, or the patient is just nervous and the patient says, you know, I would like to proceed to something a little more immediate than going to the operating room, doing in particular a far posterior medial wall decompression to treat their optic neuropathy. And I think that's an important point I always make with my fellows and other trainees is that the purpose of decompression in these cases is different than when the patient has quiescent disease. And we're, our goal is to reduce proptosis to improve eye position. Here, we really want to get far back decompress that medial orbit, which is where you need to create space to allow the optic nerve to be less compressed. And if you purely do a lateral decompression, you simply can't do that. And I will go back later in these individuals and do a more comprehensive decompression because I feel that in the active stage, if one tries to do that, you may not get as good an effect as if you wait until their orbits are quiet. Thank you. Um, and in the other issue that really affects neuroophthalmology in particular is the uh, the issue of diplopia and uh, management of these patients. And, and I guess I have a slight referral bias in it as a neurologist. The patients that I see often don't have the most obvious active disease, but sometimes they have an unusual pattern of diplopia and imaging might be the key investigation that helps show the uh, abnormalities there. Um, what faith do you put in the you know, finding of uh, extraocular muscle enlargement on, on imaging and um, how do we manage these patients? I think when a patient comes in purely with diplopia, they have a pattern of strabismus that suggests a restrictive process and then you get the imaging that demonstrates enlargement of muscles that either fits the pattern of strabismus that you measured and or goes in the characteristic involvement that we see with thyroid eye disease with inferior and medial rectus being involved typically before lateral and superior rectus. I will put in a caveat though that I have seen any pattern possible with thyroid eye disease, so we should use this as a guideline, but not an absolute. If I see sparing of tendons, I see the characteristic enlargement of the muscle bellies. There's no other lesion in the orbit, and it fits with the diagnosis. What I tend to do is I tend to get the antibodies that studies that I mentioned before, because often they're still positive, even if the patient has what appears to be otherwise quiescent and stable disease, and that can reassure you and others in uh, the patient that you have the right diagnosis. And then if their strabismus is stable for several months, I tend to use six as a guideline, but it can be shorter, then they are reasonable candidates for strabismus surgery if that's what they prefer. Um, the use of temporary or permanent prisms also can be very useful in these patients.
great. I think that gives us a fantastic overview of this topic. Uh, so just in the last minute, perhaps, um, just for new ophthalmologists like, that don't see this very often because they're often now managed by a surgical colleague, um, what would you say would be the, the top three pitfalls that you think we could avoid testing and measuring these patients? The first thing is you just have to keep it at the forefront of your mind whenever you see a patient with new proptosis or new diplopia. And as neuro-ophthalmologists, we get referred to these patients. We get referred to patients for what is called ptosis, but in fact, they may have island attraction on the contralateral side, and that's the only sign of the thyroid eye disease, and we may falsely go down a pathway of looking for causes of ptosis if we don't recognize that. We need to take a good history and ask the patient if they had any sort of inflammatory symptoms in the past. They may come in saying that reporting a history of hypothyroidism, but when you inquire further, they may say, oh, that's because my thyroid was removed five years ago because I was hyperthyroid. And so we need to always ask about those details and uh, just be thorough in our assessment, not only of the eyes themselves, but of the whole orbital area to look for characteristic signs that could help us in making the diagnosis. I think that's great. And um, we might leave it, uh, leave it there. And um, thank you so much for your time and for your contribution to this conference and to this podcast. And we hopefully will see you back in Australia very soon.